Moncrief on News Talk. 53106 is our text number that will cost you 30 cents. You are listening to the Moncrief Show on News Talk. Time to have a look at some stories from other parts of the world. We're joined once again by Jonathan DeBurka Butler. Afternoon, Jonathan. Sean, how are you getting on? Uh, okay, so we're going to go to Nigeria first and uh, Shell are, are in court. This is Shell, the, the oil company, I assume. Yeah, so the so the case itself is based in Nigeria, but uh, or is because of Nigeria, shall we say? But it's it's based in the Hague, uh, so it's a Dutch court. The Dutch Court of Appeal in the Hague, in fact, ruled on Friday that Shell had to pay four farmers, okay, and clean up their their land um, after a dispute that was started in two thousand and eight. Okay, so look, anybody who knows anything about this particular dispute will know that's been going on for there's been controversy around oil exploration and exploitation in the the Niger Delta um, ever since it started in the 1950s. Right. So this is an area that's the size of Ireland and um, it's quite difficult to police. Um, but nonetheless, there has always been question marks over the cleanliness, shall we say, of, of certain oil companies. Uh, both literally and non-literally, I mean by that their connections to the military and and uh, and politics and and that kind of thing as well. So anyway, this case was taken in 2008 by four farmers and friends of the earth in in uh, the Hague, and they've won. Um, finally, uh, it's been decided by the Dutch court that they are going to have to pay compensation. We don't know how much to these four farmers um, for. Uh, basically two leaks that happened between 2004 and 2007 and uh, as i said uh, you know decimated their land uh, and uh, I, you said there's no it's not said are they keeping it secret how much compensation they might get or ha- has the court just not specified that i think it's really that the court hasn't specified that now this has gone through a few uh, iterations shall we say so i mean as i said 2008 was when it started there was a decision made in 2013 which granted compensation to one of the farmers, but not the other three. So both sides actually went back to the appeals court and said, we're not happy with this. They came up with this decision now just last week, and uh, they can go to a higher court to appeal again. So I would imagine that Shell will probably do that uh, because they're not particularly happy about that. Now, they're 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 saying, you know, that they shouldn't... Uh, be given responsibility for this because it was done by saboteurs but the r- ruling of the court was that there was no clear indication or it wasn't beyond reasonable doubt that saboteurs were responsible for it and it's interesting because the first guy got his compensation because the court back in 2013 because the court held that there was uh, that there was insufficient security around a kind of a well cap it was really very specific mm. and that it should have been fastened better uh, and that and the leak wouldn't have happened. So, so you know, friends of the earth have always said Shell aren't doing enough to protect uh, people. They're not doing enough around maintenance, and they're not doing enough to clean the place up after them. So, it's a big win for them. And um, but as I said, I don't think it's the end of it. Right. Okay. But but even it, it, there's no mechanism to make Shell give over a red cent to anyone. I don't think so, uh, yeah. to be honest with you. Not 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 in the interim. Um, uh, n- not that I've seen anyway, to be honest with you. So so I don't know. Yeah. Right. Uh, Sierra, uh, Sierra Leone we're going to uh, next. Uh, well, or I suppose the border between that and Guinea. Uh, a, a border town dispute is, has kind of started up again. 
Yeah, so the, you, you might remember recently when we were talking about Guinea, uh, we were talking about President Alpha Conde, who, who did a classic sort of West African thing where he, he changed the constitution to allow himself to run for a third term, right? And he sort of felt that there was a lot of criticism in the area uh, and that some of that criticism towards him was coming from Sierra Leone and he didn't like the, in, them interfering with internal affairs. So to cut a long story short, he, he kind of closed the border down because of that perceived interference. And that meant that the new president of Sierra Leone, Julius Bio, uh, wasn't particularly happy because it brought a town back into play that had been disputed and has been disputed for the last 20 years. Now, this is a small village called Yenga, which probably wouldn't be of that much significance if it hadn't sort of changed from being a small fishing village to a place where they found diamonds in the 1990s, right? <laughs> and it was occupied by the government troops of Guinea during the civil war in Sierra Leone in the 1990s, okay? They, they were there to secure their borders and to help, they say, at least the, the government of Sierra Leone. But one suspects that there might have been something to do with the shiny min minerals in the ground as well. And, and that is po quite possibly the reason why they haven't really left the area, right? Um, so there's been they've been close to coming to blows over this over the years. Um, they've always managed to avoid it. And it looks like at this stage, although it's very tense and Sierra Leone are saying that the, the Ghanaian troops are in the village and they shouldn't be there, uh, bilateral talks are now taking place as of uh, yesterday, I think. And uh, also the, the, the local union, the European Union type thing, ECOWAS, 15 members, is also putting pressure on the two of them to, to resolve the dispute. So it, lo it looks like it might be okay. Um, but it's it's tension that they don't need in that neighborhood, given what's going on with, you know, militants and all other, all sorts of other things. Yeah, indeed. Right, Canada, we're going to go to next. And I suppose we're familiar with stories here where there might be one or two spare vaccines and someone, you know, gives it to someone who wasn't on the list. But this is in a different universe to that kind of a yeah. story. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's not uh, it's it's not like that at all. I mean, this is just a rich person, basically. Uh, tricking people into into giving them a vaccine it's a, a millionaire couple by the name they're, they're young in their 30s maybe early 40s uh rodney baker and uh, katharina baker she's an actress apparently and and they're from vancouver he's uh, used to be head of a, a sort of a casino company so he's a, he's extremely wealthy so anyway, they took it upon themselves to travel from Vancouver to Yukon, uh, which is well outside the five kilometer route, <laughs> if they have such a thing in Canada, but it's nearly 2000 kilometers away. And they pretended to be uh, local motel employees and they went in and they got vaccinated. That was meant for, you know, uh, Canadian Indians who, who had to have a mobile depot brought out to them because they didn't have a local hospital to give them the the vaccine, right? So these are like absolutely dirt poor people. And these two millionaires get on a plane, break their lockdown, break quarantine and go and get this vaccine. So initially they were given a fine of just over $2,000 each. But given that the guy, when he retired out of the casino, got a payout of 45 million Canadian dollars, it's a drop in the ocean to him. Um, so it looks like they could be prosecuted now. And, and if they are, uh, they could get up to six months pri uh, uh, prison time, which um, would be interesting for them, I suppose. <laughs> uh, I'm sure it would be interesting for them. And 
don't see them getting much in the way of sympathy. Uh, uh, no, they're, after- they're not. I can tell you that they really aren't. This is wall to wall coverage in Canada. And it's, uh, uh, you know, it's sort of get out of the country territory, really. But I don't think they're going to be able to. Yeah. Right. Uh, Chile, we're going to go to ne- uh, next. And uh, a policeman there has been jailed. Yes, so this is uh, a policeman uh, on Thursday. Carlos Alarcon was his name. He was sentenced to 11 years in prison over the over the killing, the murder, really, of, of a 24-year-old uh, indigenous Mapuche, okay, um, who was named Camilo Catrilanca. He was, as I said, 24. He was the grandson of a, a prominent Mapuche indigenous leader, and he was caught in a car chase and basically shot in the back of the head by this uh, policeman. And there was another five years added on for the attempted killing of a 15-year-old boy who was on the tractor with um, with uh, Mr. Katrilanka. And I suppose it's interesting because the, the police force, the Carabineros in Chile in recent years, they wouldn't have a great reputation anyway, you know, dating back to the time of Pinochet and all of that kind of thing. But that has carried on. And they're having uh, a really, a t- a t- reputationally anyway, a terrible time over the last couple of years. You might remember there was riots in late 2019 and 30 people died in that. And there's been several thousand cases brought against police because of those riots. But their treatment of their, of the Mapuche over the years um, has, has come in for an awful lot of criticism and, and seen as being very heavy handed. So for, for people who've been looking for justice for, you know, you know, random killings really of, uh, or uh, extrajudicial killings of, of Mapuche. Um, this is something of a result. Right. Okay. But at the same time, my, my, could it also be seen as just kind of a token result when there's, you know, kind of a, lo- a low level war going on? Yeah, there is, I suppose, a, a low level war. I, I suppose it depends on what type side of the fence you're on, really. I mean, this guy was part of of a group, a uh, special forces unit called the Jungle Commandos, and it was their job to basically stamp out what might be perceived by some people as environmental terrorism. There's also a bit of drug dealing and the like going on as well. And as I said, it was quite heavy handed. I think the hope from campaigners anyway would be that it would be the start of something. And, and 16 years, I suppose, in prison is a pretty heavy sentence when you consider that there hasn't been anything really like this dished out before. So I suppose uh, from campaigners' point of view, they would see it as a positive. Right, Japan we're going to go to next. Uh, We don't really uh, do that many stories in Japan. Uh, And this is a very odd one. Woman keeps mother's body in the freezer for a decade. Yeah, 48-year-old woman by the name of Yumi Yoshino. Um, She found her mother dead, apparently. And instead of letting anybody know about it, she hid the body in a freezer. Um, when the when it was discovered, uh, they they found that it had been actually bent in such a way to actually fit in the freezer. Um, they didn't find any uh, wounds on it. There's no suggestion that there was foul play or murder or anything like that. Uh, she said that she didn't want to tell anybody because she didn't want to move out of her house. Um, in the end, she was actually kicked out of the house because she missed rent payments. And a cleaner, God love her, actually f- discovered the body and then alerted the police. Um, so at this stage, I don't even know if she's going to be charged or what's going to happen to her. But it's certainly a very odd story. Yeah, but I, I, maybe there's kind of rent controls in whatever part of Japan this woman lives in. And uh, it's, it's difficult to get a nice apartment. 
Well, we all know, I mean, the the problems that people have with getting any any sort of a size of apartment that's anyway decent. So, you know, rent, if we think it's bad here, I think it's equally bad in parts of Japan. Um, so she did have something to fear, all right, but whether sticking your mum in a freezer is, is the, the answer to it, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. No, it would have forced her to eat fresh food, though, for the last 10 years, so <laughs> I mean, good for her skin. Uh, right, Singapore, we're going to go to now. Uh, a 16-year-old has been arrested for uh, planning an attack on a mosque. Yeah, this is a staggering story, really. As he said, he's, he's a 16-year-old um, who... Was, it's really chilling, actually. He, he, he was planning the attack to coincide with the anniversary of the Christchurch attacks, right? He was planning it on March 15th, apparently. And he was going to attack two mosques in Singapore, right? He was going to live stream the whole thing, use machetes, all that kind of thing. And from the, the reports um, that are the details that the police have let out, they basically said that he knew exactly what he was doing, as in, he knew that he wasn't going to come out of that alive, but he was going to take as many people with him as he possibly could. It's really chilling. Um, there are, as I said, he was targeting two mosques, right? There's a population of about three and a half million people in Singapore, and about 15% of them are Muslims. So it's quite a significant population. You know, his motive here was to sow, uh, you know, divide, religious divide without a shadow of a doubt. Mm. And um, uh, But thankfully, he's been stopped but it's very interesting the the law that was used against them was the Internal Security Act. And according to the report that I read, since 2015, seven people under the age of 20 have been detained or been given restriction orders under that particular act. Um, I don't know what exactly they did, but I mean, seven people under 20. Uh, yeah. is quite something. Uh, well, Singapore, uh, people will know that the, the laws there are quite uh, are quite stern. True. Uh, uh, so it could be anything, I, I, I suppose. Still, though, and is there any evidence or any reports that, that how this young fella had been had been radicalised this way? How this happened to him? Yeah, I mean, again, the police aren't giving out too much, but they basically said in a statement that he had been inspired by far right extremist ideology, and I think the fact. They they do know. I didn't want to say it really, but they do know that he was a Protestant Christian of Indian ethnicity, right? They said that, so that have had, might have had something mm. to do. But it, you know, the fact that he was going to carry out the attack on the anniversary of the Christchurch attacks probably is a good indicator of where he was getting his ideas yeah, from. That's pretty grim stuff. Uh, finally, we're going to go to the US, where um, uh, this is a robbery trial where Jack Nicholson was used, not in person yeah. though. Yeah, this is in New Jersey. It is um, a man by the name of Damon Williams. Uh, he was prosecuted and was sent to prison. Um, I think for the guts of ten years, if not a little bit more. But anyway, cut a long story short, uh, he he went into a bank and he sent a pushed a note into the teller to basically say, "Please, all the money, thank you." And he didn't use any weapons, but he walked out of the place with four thousand six hundred dollars. Right, so. The, the problem here is that he the jury had to decide whether to the sentence that was going to be uh, given against him was going to be for robbery, which would involve violence, or theft, right, which didn't involve violence. And the, the sentence length is quite significant, right? There's, mm. there's a gap of about five years there. Now, in his summation, the prosecuting lawyer produced a photograph of Jack Nicholson, the iconic picture in The Shining, where his head is coming through the door and he's holding a knife, right? And the, the prosecuting uh, the, the prosecutor basically said that actions speak louder than words. And nobody was really sure what he meant by that. The defense immediately got up and said, look, you can't be 
you know, equating Jack Nicholson holding a knife to this guy who pushed a note into a teller. You know, it's not the same thing. The judge at the time overruled and said, yeah, it doesn't make any difference. And this guy was sent down for robbery and sent to prison for 10 years. So he went to appeal. The appeal was originally upheld. But now the New Jersey Supreme Court on Tuesday granted Williams a new trial uh, because they basically said that what the prosecuting lawyer was doing was sensationalizing it by the use of the image of Jack Nicholson. So it's a very interesting case, I thought. And um, <laughs> this guy looks like he's he's off scot free now until the re- retrial. Uh, the here's Johnny defence. Uh, Indeed, in, yes, <laughs> Jonathan. Uh, thanks very much for speaking with us today. That was Johnny, Jonathan de Butler. There you are, listening to the Moncrief Show on News Talk. We're going to take a break. Back in a couple of minutes. Moncrief on News Talk.